Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And today we're talking about how there is so much more to the PTA than meets the eye. You might assume that all they do is hold bake sales. As the title implies, there is so much more to these parent groups than just that. And the reason I wanted to talk about these groups is because in our podcast that we did before on the foster care system, we sort of touched on how these groups in the progressive era got their start. There were a lot of women in big cities, for instance, who wanted to help uplift the immigrant population, but it wasn't just that. There was more to it. They wanted to help the children of these immigrants learn how to be proper, quote-unquote, Americans and get them off the streets and out of factories. And so there was a large push by women in these big cities to sort of fight for the rights of these people, for better or for worse, to help them help them be the kind of Americans that that they thought they should be. Yeah, and one of the main organizations that we brought up in the foster care episode that we'll also touch on in our episode on on the PTA is the Children's Aid Society, which was founded in 1853 by social reformers. Um, and this is coming, we're, we're right um, on the heels of the Progressive Era, which starts in uh, 1900. So the Children's Aid Society gets started in the 1850s. Um, and in 1863, it establishes a forerunner to parent-teacher organizations in which teachers are helping mothers learn better ways to care for their families. And as we'll talk about more, there um, starts to be a bigger push for legislation on state levels for mothers' pensions, specifically to help out um, widowed women, single mothers, because there is this notion that actually evolved in the prior century that the mother-child relationship is crucial for a healthy household and um, family development. And that comes directly out of enlightenment theory um, from John Locke and Rousseau, because before that, the fathers in the family actually had more of a control over the children's education because uh, we were talking about agrarian society, men were home more, they were the heads of the household and had more purview over the kids' learning and, and religious education as well. But then in the 1750s, and of course going into the 19th and 20th centuries, that relationship of the mother and the children really becomes that paramount uh, family dynamic. And I do think it's interesting that the precursor to the the national PTA and general PTO groups, uh, it was really the focus was on teaching parents how to be better parents at this time. You know, you can save children's lives through better hygiene. You can teach them about this and that so that they're not using their little hands in factories. You know, keep your children in school and they can be more successful in life. And all of these, um, all of these social pushes were really led by women. And I think it's interesting to point out that, you know, how strongly women were involved in some of these social movements because they couldn't vote. So, you know, as we talked about in our Women as Peacekeeper podcast about women uh, agitating for peace on the sidelines, 
traditionally? Well, it was the same kind of thing before they achieved the vote here in America in 1920. They were pushing for social reform sort of from the sidelines, and they ended up winning suffrage in local school, school board elections before they actually won the right to vote for the president. Right. The National Education Association was among one of the first civil society organizations in which women occupied positions of authority. And this isn't something that we can go into great detail on this podcast, but this is one of the reasons why teaching becomes such a female dominated profession, because it's one of the first arenas open to women from the more administrative sidelines and also from um, professional opportunities as well. Yeah. And plus, there was the whole view that, um, you know, women are mothers and mothers are teachers. And so they they kind of had this view of women and teachers um, being interchangeable and women being able to provide the most stable education for a lot of these young children. And there's also a big push from states and local districts as well to educate children, to make sure that kids are um, getting a decent education, even if their parents might not be wealthy enough to send them to private schools. We have the establishment starting in Massachusetts of public education systems, and that spreads throughout the country. Um, and, and the reason why a lot of this happens is not necessarily because of the virtue of wanting all kids to be able to read, but really it traces back to the Industrial Revolution and low-wage child labor and then adult men losing their jobs because these kids can work for cheaper. And so you have, uh, you know, li- little ones in the factory, adults getting uh, frustrated about that, forming trade unions that then put political pressure to enforce things like compulsory education and truancy laws to get those kids first out of the factories and then off of the streets and into schools. So for better, for worse, their efforts paid off, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, as, as Kristen pointed out, I mean, a lot of these women entered the teaching profession and... Um, the advocacy uh, of of schooling for young kids because a lot of other professions were close to them, uh, professions such as law, medicine, and theology. And then there was that whole blue-collar thing being inconsistent with notions of femininity. So teaching seemed like a middle ground as far as spheres go, like social spheres. And then for the women who didn't necessarily need to or want to pursue more professional careers in education, these upper and middle class white women, to be more specific, really clung to a lot of social causes during and leading up to the progressive era. Yeah, during this time, uh, these college-educated women took to association building, as PBS called it. They have a, an excellent section on the progressive era and the women a- activists of this time. Um, and they said that, you know, as these women were barred from, from more professional careers, or as Kristen pointed out, maybe they just weren't pursuing them, um, and they, but they still wanted to be a part of the process. They got in, involved in things like settlement houses, which was where, they would bring immigrant women to learn certain skills like knitting or whatever to, to basically to help you learn what being a proper American and knitter is all about. And so they were sort of, like we said before, working outside of the formal electoral structure. And they exerted they really exerted during this time pressure on elected officials regarding social policies. But we should back up a little bit because this is you know, that's during the full swing of the progressive era. And we should talk about what happened at the end of the 19th century, 
which is basically the purpose of this podcast. Exactly. 1897 is the year that the National Congress of Mothers and later the National Congress of Parents and Teachers was formed by two women, Alice McLean Burney and Phoebe Apperson Hurst. And Phoebe Apperson Hurst is the wife, was, she's dead now, (laughs) was the wife of George Hurst, the very wealthy businessman who, they were the parents of... Um, William Randolph. Thank first. you. Exactly. Just just a little bit of trivia. But yeah, these women met in 1897, and that is when they held the first uh, Mother's Congress. It's a gathering of 2,000 people, not just women and not just mothers. There were 2,000 various types of people who met in Washington, D.C. to basically get acquainted with all of these issues that this group would be fighting for. Right, because Bernie was especially concerned that there wasn't enough literature to guide and educate mothers. Because you, again, uh, well, you know, you have to remember that this issue of the role of the mother in the home and educating the children at the home and creating a relationship between public schools and the home was so important because this was a major shift away from schooling inside the home, which had been the standard for so long. Right. And right away, right out of the gate, this was a national organization. And I don't I didn't really realize that before doing research for this episode. I just assumed that PTAs started as general parent teacher groups and then grew into something more national. But right off the bat, they're a national organization. And in 1901, they established national dues of five cents. So reaching deep into your pockets. Hey, for those five cents. I bet five cents was still a pretty penny. Yeah, or a nickel, or whatever. <laughs> Within just the first several years of organizing, they had organized local parent-teacher associations. They had advocated for more adequate marriage, divorce, and child labor laws. Published booklets on sex ed, so they're you know at the forefront of that. And they formed committees on child hygiene and juvenile court and probation work. All of this just up until 1909. So they're doing a lot of work in their first 10 years or so. Yeah, by 1916, I was surprised by this fact. By 1916, the National Congress was pushing for, and when I say National Congress, I mean the Mother's Congress, not the U.S. Congress, was pushing for sprinkler systems and fire escapes in schools. Yes. Thinking ahead. And over the years, the National PTA would take credit for things like creation of kindergarten classes, child labor laws, as you mentioned, public health service, hot lunch programs, juvenile justice systems, and mandatory immunization. One big thing that they took a stand on that Krista mentioned earlier is mothers' pensions. And in 1911, which is the year that Illinois became the first state to enact a mothers' pension law, the National Congress voted to work for mothers' pension laws in every state. And these laws basically provided pension payments that would allow mothers who had been widowed or abandoned to continue to exert moral influence over their children in the home, with the philosophy being that children are better off with their mothers than in orphanages. And if you give mothers money, it lets them stay home and provide that feminine motherly influence that assure, ensures that the child will grow up healthy. And then in 1916, uh, the National Congress President, Hannah Kent Scoff, wrote that mothers' pensions were necessary because many children had been driven into the ranks of wage earners before they were physically able to do the tasks 
required of them, which makes sense if we're talking about um, the you know the industrial revolution and the problems with child labor back then. Um, and because of that, they would deprive them a chance to receive a proper education. And part of that education too that we've both touched on is this idea of the melting pot. During mm-hmm. this time, there is a huge influx of um, immigrants into the United States, and while some of the motivations are a little questionable because um, these are a lot of upper class white women who are a lot of whom are concerned about people who look different from themselves coming into right. society and wanting to maintain some kind of order. And schools were a way of doing that, separating people into grades and, you know, sending them all into the same place, giving them a uniform curriculums, all assimilating them into this new and rapidly urbanizing and changing society. Right. And as Deborah Ward points out in her book, The White Welfare State, which basically talks about race issues in America, the history of American welfare, she says that from the get go, the primary actors in this mother's pension movement were women, particularly these women's organizations. And she points out that members of these groups claim that they were the true experts on family policy, not doctors or so, uh, social workers, so that they should be more involved in the process. Yeah, and mothers' pensions, um, which were an extension of widows' pensions, were something that was difficult for legislators to say no to. Because uh, even today we hear politicians talking about how they advocate on behalf of women. This goes back very far in our political history. And Kristen mentioned uh, Hannah Kent Schaaf earlier, and who wrote uh, a 1916 essay basically addressing the group's responsibilities. And she talks about, like you said, how an organized school system is really the avenue for providing home education for parents. And it wasn't until this group formed, this National Congress of Mothers and Parent-Teacher Associations, that uh, it really kind of filtered it all down and enabled parents to learn as much as they can. And she she goes into a little bit of the history and talks about how after the National Congress established headquarters in Washington, state branches were established. And in 1902, they started establishing child labor committees to advocate against the employment of young kids in mines and factories. And they also served to educate mothers about hygiene, care and feeding of babies, and how that would be able to save more children's lives. So it seems like the the roots of the PTA go back to educating mother and children outside of school. But then we have the major shift after 1920, once women um, win the right to vote, uh, they, they drop mothers from that title, and it becomes the National Congress of Parent-Teacher Associations. And the, the, the focus shifts more to education outside of the home, actually in the schools. And already having that headquarters set up in Washington, D.C., you have the, you know, the basis of now what is a very powerful lobbying force. Yeah. Um, Matthew Crinson, in his book, Building the Invisible Orphanage, a Prehistory of the American Welfare System, writes about how getting the vote in 1920 didn't bring an end to women's political activism, but it just changed the nature of their participation. Um, there's the shift from maternalist reformers, as he calls them, to professional educators. And this is similar to the way that many of activists, many of the activist causes in the progressive era ended up being taken into the bureaucratic fold, so they succeeded in getting a lot of their concerns 
recognized and taken up on a national level, but it sort of separated those activists from the things that they had been fighting for. And the PTA is a little different in that respect because they still are the major, uh, the major organization fighting for this stuff. But what about the PTO? Because people who are members of PTOs might disagree with that statement. They Mm -hmm. might say that on a, when it comes to a local level, the PTA is not where it's at. Yeah, this is coming from Tim Sullivan. He's the founder of PTO Today, which is a nonprofit that provides resources and information to parent-teacher groups that are independent from PTAs. And he basically specifies that PTOs are independent groups that don't pay dues to a national organization or focus on issues really outside of their own school or town, and they don't have lobbyists like the PTA does. Now, what came as a surprise to me in studying this is that the PTA, numbers-wise, is not as powerful as it used to be, and largely in, because of the PTO and groups on the local level realizing that they might not need to pay dues to a national organization in order to get things done for the school that their child is going to. Um, and, and just for an idea of how those numbers have dropped, the PTA reached a record high membership in 1962 with 12.1 million members. And in the early 1980s, that membership had dropped to about 5 million. And um, we should note that desegregation in the 60s and 70s was a major reason for the drop in PTA participation because of busing um, children from to, to different neighborhoods in order to increase the racial diversity of schools, which sent parents up in arms, but also scattered a lot of those those PTA groups. Yeah, one of the one of the main issues then and now is that people are some people are uncomfortable with paying dues to a national organization and having some of their money leave the school and also the fact that the PTA takes stances on things that not all parents and not all school districts agree with um and sometimes that advocacy work just bothers some parents and the Associated Press quoted one Georgia father as saying that you think you're joining a group to support your school but you're actually joining a quote massive political action committee and i think that it's also the stereotype of the PTA that might turn some parents off or think that it's not something that would fit their lives. Um, you know, the, the PTA was initially founded by middle and upper class white women. By mm-hmm. the 1940s and 50s, it became this community event for housewives. And you talk about, you know, the, you know, we're not talking about bake sales today because they do so much beyond bake sales, but that kind of fundraising that was led primarily by women who were not working outside of the home, I think is a stereotype that has, has plagued it up until today. And especially with the rise of the PTO as an alternative to the PTA, the uh, the national organization, the National Parent Teacher Organ- Association, has been trying to break away from that stereotype of the organization as something specifically for um, you know uh, upper class women who don't have jobs. To be blunt about it. Right. And they're, they're taking on different, uh, tacks to try to get people to join, to, to increase the ranks of the PTA. And incoming president Otha Thornton, when he takes over, he'll be the PTA's first male black president. 
So that's totally different from the origins of the PTA back in the progressive era. And he said that his strategies are encouraging urban parents to become more involved in their local schools, expanding outreach to rural schools, and training a whole new wave of leaders from minority groups. And we should mention, too, that the National PTA elected its first male president, Charles J. Saylor, in 2009. And um, the, the group has gotten together in recent years with the National Center for Fathering to try to get more men specifically engaged because there are plenty of studies that have found that the more engaged parents are with their children's schools, typically there's a correlation with kids' um, improved academic achievement. Yeah, this is brought up in a New York Times article talking about men's involvement in the PTA. And uh, they, they cite a 2009 study by the National Congress of Parents and Teachers, there you go, and the National Center for Fathering. They found that 590 out of 1,000 fathers surveyed nationwide said they attended school parent meetings, which is up from 470 out of 1,000 a decade earlier. And so the New York Times is looking into why more men are getting involved. And the reasons are kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's multifaceted. Tell me. I'll say that. They point out that more women have more demanding jobs, more men are underemployed during the recession, and there's more shared parenting responsibilities going on. But they also bring up the issue of the professionalization of the PTA, mm-hmm. which could be construed as a good thing or could be construed as kind of offensive to the women who have historically run the PTA. It's a little snarky. I'll go, I'll go ahead and say it. Uh, yeah, the, the New York Times points out that, you know, women are coming in with more advanced degrees and all of this job experience, managerial experience. And with that, they're coming into these meetings, running them more like board meetings than bake sale organizational get togethers. Yes. Which I say is, you know, for, for the plenty of women out there who have raised a lot of money from brownies and doing plenty of other things, it was a, a little bit of a snarky jab on the part of the New York Times. Yeah, and they say that this whole professionalization thing makes men more comfortable, which sounds like, I don't know, make the office nicer, put out drinks, let's all just be in mad <laughs> I mean, I know it's not, I know it's not to that extent, but I, I think it's sort of silly to say that, um, women being more professional and running companies makes men more comfortable to join the PTA. Mm. I mean, I, I think that what we, what we can agree on with this, with this coverage of more men in the PTA is that A, that is a fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, get more men involved with their children's education. Absolutely. And get more men involved with improving school systems. That totally needs to happen, especially because state and local governments are running such major deficits right now and having to close down schools entirely. Um, and they've found that, you know, the more people that you get involved, men and women, included, the more of a community voice they have and more of a local um, force they have to every do everything from get ineffective teachers out to getting more resources in. Yeah, and there are other types of organizations springing up. There was a Huffington Post article about parents' unions and how there's this Los Angeles-based nonprofit Parent Revolution that in 2010 helped push a law through, giving parents the authority to force turnarounds at failing, failing schools through petitions. And this is great, but a lot of teachers are saying, like, ah, uh, hello, not everything is the best idea. <laughs> not everything that parents say should be law. Right. Um, the, the parent trigger laws, which have also... Um, 
I don't know that they've taken effect, but I know that they have been introduced in a number of other state legislatures, uh, are pretty controversial. But, uh, you know, it, it's still the same issue of getting more parents involved because a number of schools are failing. And mm-hmm. a lot of times the most effective voices out there and the most forceful voices are those parents because they have a direct interest in their children succeeding. Um, and, and then there's the issue, too, of organizing PTOs and even um, PTAs, although it's harder because of that financial burden that comes along with it of having to pay district, state, and national dues. But reaching out to low-income schools, to minority groups, to especially talking about um, these these parent groups in California, reaching out to Spanish-speaking parents who might not be participating because of language barriers. There are still so many um, sort of... Uh, class and race barriers that still carry over from when the roots of the organization were first formed. Yeah. And there are a lot of school districts that either don't want you to have an independent parent group or who don't want you to have a PTA. So it kind of depends on your school district, too. So to me, the most enlightening thing that I learned about the PTA is that it is certainly not that stagnant image of of a bake sale of just women getting together and chatting while their children are in school. It's it's such a it's a still evolving organization. And then when you think about the PTOs and then Parent Revolution and other parent groups that are getting involved, it's this social progressive movement that continues even today. And it's probably needed even more today than ever before because of the failure rate and low grades in schools. Absolutely. It can only help to have parents involved at some level in mm-hmm. their kids' schools. So tell us, are you are you a PTA member or are you a PTO member? Or do, were you turned off from the school organization? There are plenty of blog posts and columns out there from teachers or parents, I should say, and probably teachers who went to a meeting and were immediately just sort of put off by the whole thing. And teachers, too. Do PTAs and PTOs help your, make your job easier, or are they a hindrance? Yeah. There is so much information in this podcast. We kind of had to, to gloss over some things, but I hope to hear from a lot of you, because it it's an important topic. Yeah. It has to do with a lot more than brownies. Exactly. So send us your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can direct those letters. And you can also post stuff on Facebook as well and tweet us at momstuffpodcast. In the meantime, I've got an email here on our episode about yoga from Anne Marie. And she was writing in specifically about the book we referenced, uh, The Science of Yoga, Risks and Rewards by William J. Broad, because Broad got a lot of press coverage from this book specifically focusing on the risks involved um, in that in that title and so she writes uh, the author of that book is not anti-yoga at all and is quick to point out the benefits of yoga he has done yoga for years and acknowledges his part in his injury he's really trying to be accurate and factual about a topic that seems to be defensively protected when its claims are challenged yoga is not perfect and it is a multi-million or billion dollar industry so its proponents are not necessarily going to be objective when their livelihoods are scientifically examined. She also recommends listening to the NPR interview with William J. Broad that shows more of his point of view. And she also uh, mentions that hot yoga does not sweat out toxins. The whole toxin removal craze is pretty much all exaggeration. One hint is that while people will claim removal of toxins, they usually don't say specifically (laughs) what these toxins are supposed to be. 
Yeah, I mean, I have no idea. All I know is that I was sweating out sweat. Yeah. Lots of it. <laughs> Maybe because it's so exhausting when you sweat out so many things, you imagine that something terrible must have exited your body. Exactly like demons and whatnot. <laughs> right. Okay, and I have an email from Katie. We are, we're still getting a lot of response about our potty politics uh, episode. I love them. So many squatting debates. I know. And, and here's one of them. Sort of. Um, she said, I just wanted to share something that I realized about myself. You made the comment that teaching young girls to squat while urinating was the major segregation between the sexes growing up. Although that was us quoting someone else. <laughs> yes. Point that out. Yes. That was in literature that we were quoting. Um, she said that I was recently in a relationship and I was ashamed to learn that my boyfriend of the time would pee sitting down. I know his reasons for doing this are likely because he works on a ship and it's just easier, but I have to say it really upset me. I felt less attracted to him and hated the idea that other people might found out, find out that he did this. I know that this was just some really weird some subconscious thing that had nothing to do with who he was or what he did, but it just bothered me. I find nothing wrong with squatting to pee for women. Sure, if someone were to figure out some really great new way to pee, I'm sure I would jump on board. But I have to question this ideal that everyone should be the same. I am all for the equal rights. Women should have their own bathrooms. And as for transgendered people, I would like to think that we were heading to a world where if someone identifies themselves as a woman or a man, then they can just use those bathrooms. There is no secret to it. Everyone excretes, so get over it. I just want to get across that whether you're a woman or a person who identifies as a woman, it's all right to be feminine because there are so many ways to be feminine that there is no way you can go wrong if you just stick to what you believe in. And yet the issue of being ashamed of a, of a guy peeing while sitting down. Mm. I'm, I'm raising a, a wary eyebrow. Indeed. Any, any uh, pee sitter males out there? I want to hear from you. I want to know what you think about that letter. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send all of your thoughts. And you can also hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And, of course, you can read up on a lot of education policy over at our home website, HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?